0: Should we get started? You're all very welcome to uh, LSC. And uh, my name should be up there. Yeah, this is me. And I'm the, Conor Gearty. And I'm at LSE. And uh, I'm delighted to be uh, chairing Francesca. Francesca Klug. And as you can see, Professor Research Fellow, Centre for the Study of Human Rights, We've been working uh, together for a very long time and uh, we have been working at King's where Francesca was and now at LSE where Francesca is and the bio reminds me the King's College in the 90s. It was called the Human Rights Incorporation Project of which Francesca was Senior Research Fellow. Uh, She's also been a commissioner on the Equality and Human Rights Commission from 2006 to 2009 and a member (laughs) of a small group within the Ministry of Justice just before the election, I think, last time around, which I'm told, according to this, was the Bill of Rights and Responsibilities Reference Group. Sounds a bit. Sounds a bit... (laughs) bit Trotsky-eyed. And so, in other words... Since the 90s, Francesca Cluck has been around this subject. And that this that she's been around has been part political-legal, part policy, and part sort of intellectual, scholarly, philosophical. So there's a very rounded field to the work. And there is a new book, comma, I have to say, imminent. The book is not available... Now, this is an advanced plug. Is that fair enough? Mm. It's an advanced plug.
1: 20% discount.
0: You can get, if you take the risk of this book ever coming out, (laughs) you can get 20% off now. Ten years ago, you could have bought it for 5p. But obviously, it becomes more expensive as it becomes a more realistic possibility. And I'm reliably informed and have read something that purports to be the book that it will be out,
1: out practically in a month's time? In May.
0: In May. Which I think is more than two months. In May. So the book will be in May, and it's, uh, we're going to hear about the book, but it's a distillation of a lot of what Francesca's been about. Would that be fair? Now, what there's going to be is there's going to be an opportunity. You're here, I hope you know this, I hope you know this, LSE students sometimes have an unpleasant habit of walking out in the middle of things as though they were amazed to discover it went on longer than five minutes.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you are here till just before six o'clock, you know that. <laughs> That's my very polite way of suggesting you don't leave early. And therefore what we're going to do is we're going to have a, what's called a kind of, kind of conversation, a slightly... Contrived, isn't it? Because we're not going to have our usual gossipy conversation about friends
2: <laughs> you and so <laughs> on. Uh,
0: and then we're going to have uh, an involvement of the audience. Do we have roving mics? We do. Two. Two. Brilliant. And is this going to be on the web or on the web? or? Yes. <laughs> now? Is it being streamed live?
2: <laughs> <No>.
0: <laughs> so it'll be on the web if you want to look at it again to remind yourself of the publication date. May... <laughs> Price, Francesca?
1: Oh, I don't tend to know about things like All that.
0: All great authors are indifferent to price.
1: <laughs> because it, it, this is with the 20% discount. Anyone who can do maths gets a prize. Uh-huh. So it's in paperback, 1759. But I think that's with the 20% discount. I know. Okay. What Whereas, can I do? I don't run the book trade. Right,
0: there we are. I'm sorry I raised that issue you with prices. <laughs> <laughs> now let's move on very briskly. Uh, I'm going to start by talking to Francesca about the foundations of her commitment to human rights. It's no no secret, you're not going to be amazed to learn that Francesca Cloak is committed to human rights, so she's not a sceptic. And the theme of the literary festival we're part of is foundations, and that is a theme that kind of informs what I'm going to talk about, because there are foundations in personal commitment and there are foundations in that to which you are committed and it's interesting to ask the question why people care about human rights. You can understand why people care about banks and why people care about insurance and why people care about other aspects of legal study. But uh, human rights is, by definition, is it kind of altruistic? And I'm just introducing you and take your time, Francesca. We have this time. I mean, why would somebody in your political position, was it broadly on the left? Why choose human rights? I mean, in those days, we all thought human rights was a sort of preserve of the liberals. It was deployed by the right to protect themselves from justice. What led you to this?
1: Yes, we thought it was a bit wishy-washy, people like you and I, Connor, Um, coming from a certain era. Uh, Well, at one level, though, I don't think there was ever a time in my life when I wasn't affected and influenced by the idea of human rights, because I was uh, a a very privileged uh, young girl to be brought up in a very political family, a very progressive family, and um, the ideas that we discussed around the dinner table, um, which were often very political, although my parents actually supported different political parties, um, I would distill now really as coming down to human rights. But it isn't the term that we would have used at the time, because, and this is very interesting in itself, you know, when did human rights become an idea that that entered the popular discourse? Certainly not in my childhood, and I'm not going to give you precise dates here, I'm far too old for that. Um, But really what I think moved me specifically, and then I'll go back to my young childhood after that, was... I found myself... I've had an extremely eclectic career. In fact, I've not really had one. Um, and I found myself in the 80s, um, in all the turmoil under the Thatcher government, working for the London Bar of Hackney as a researcher. I mean, the one, thing, the one common thread in all my work has been research and writing. And I was a, like a special advisor for, you know, for, for MPs. I was a special advisor, we didn't they called it political researcher, for chairs of committees at Hackney Council. And the particular chairs that I worked for were social services and community development. And um, I, we all thought we were still just about, still in the 80s trying to change the world, you know, it'd been going on since the 60s, we still thought we were maybe going to do it, precisely because things were getting worse and worse And, and uh, from the perspective, or the very partial perspective that I'm owning up to uh, which as an academic one often doesn't do, so it's quite refreshing to be able to do it, um, it that I held at the time. And um, in Hackney Council, Hackney Council prided itself on being radical and left wing and concerned about um, the rights of people And it was taking on the government, which was introducing, you'll be familiar with this term, cuts. Uh, And there were cuts to social services and cuts to housing. And I found myself increasingly uncomfortable um, with the positions that were all around me and that impacted on my work as a researcher, because I, I, I noticed what was invisible and what was visible. I noticed that the groups that were visible were the ones with either the loudest voice or the greatest voting clout. And the groups that were increasingly invisible at this point were the ones with the least voice and the least clout. And actually, at that time, elderly people were particularly invisible um, and disabled people. And there was a new scheme at the Council for independent living, as it was very new at that time, and it's made huge progress since then. And by the way, Unfortunately, this government has has been severely cutting back on the whole principle, the whole idea of independent living for disabled people, which meant that there would be a benefit paid in which you would then employ, effectively, someone to assist you to help you actually live the the same life that anyone else could live because the, the, the thinking then was... Quite rightly, disability is as much a social issue as it is a physical issue. And the council, faced with cuts, was not having too much difficulty in closing down this very new independent living um, scheme that was just getting off the ground and making cuts to elderly care at home and uh, in, in council homes. And I felt very uncomfortable with this, although I couldn't find a politics to articulate it because it was all being dressed up as supporting what the trade unions were demanding and they didn't like the independent living scheme because it affected terms and conditions and, you know, the, the housing and, and, and nurseries were much more popular issues. These things change over time. Anyway, I then went for a job at Liberty without necessarily tying that experience to why I was going for a job at Liberty. I had been... A researcher. This was to be the director of the research arm of Liberty. And um, I'd been a researcher at the Runnymede Trust, which is a race relations charity, before going to Hackney Council. So it, it just was a nice, attractive job to go for, and it was now becoming a director and it seemed interesting. And it was only when I went to Liberty and I started to read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and I started to understand the thinking behind human rights that I understood the roots of my discomfort at Hackney Council, apparently supporting a progressive policy in the context of cuts that the council definitely didn't want to make. But having been forced to, the priorities it was making was not based on those who had the greatest need, although it would have, it would have convinced itself it was, but those that had the loudest voice and those that were likely to most impact on the popular politics of the day. And I've begun to understand that human rights had something to say to progressive politics. Mm-hmm. I began to understand that there were things that were very unpleasant about progressive politics at that time because it was quite a nasty atmosphere in the way politics was debated and because muscle and voice tended to win. I understood, began to understand that this was a way of looking at the world which listened to everybody, which, where nobody was without equal concern. And it appealed to me. But that
0: sounds a bit like a kind of anti-party and anti-trade union position, Francesca, because, in a way, socialism used to deliver, uh, uh, for, for people, as it were, like you, the answer to the questions of the invisible, whoever they were. You know, the prison reform, the ending of capital punishment, gay rights, was delivered by progressive politics that didn't have use for or didn't have the language of human rights available in the old days. And what I heard you saying, I may be wrong about this, is that you're reacting to the cornering of progressive ideas by a powerful political party, Labour, of which you're a bit critical in what you've just said, and a cornering of it by trade unions that were supportive of their own members rather than the wider society, because the groups you've identified, of course, weren't unionised. So I'm wondering whether it was a reaction which was negative about the usual building blocks of progress in British society. Would that be fair?
1: I think that would be extremely fair, and I think that at the time, the way I conceptualised it was more a sort of discomfort with a sort of uh, coarseness of progressive politics, because I didn't have another philosophy to, to fit in, to basically place my discomfort with the way that left-wing politics was developing at that time. And then, of course, very soon around then was the Velvet Revolutions. We're talking the very end of the 80s here, where you know, I had grown up in an era where you know, I was schooled. In fact, here at LSE, where I was an undergraduate in the mid to late 70s, we were told... Um, that, you know, revolution was an almost, this I'm afraid was, well, not I'm afraid, I mean, I'm just describing it. This was actually by my professors and my teachers, because in those days, a, a huge number of the um, academia adelaide were Marxists. And I very much um, absorbed the idea that, you know, revolution came from class consciousness and that there was a significant chance that revolution would take place uh, in our lifetime in societies like ours. And then, of course, the only revolutions that took place in in my lifetime at that point were against the Soviet Union and its satellites. I found it quite difficult not to pause at that point and think, well, maybe something has gone a little bit wrong. But I, I did want to just take this back, because you asked me about my my, my child and my family. Oh, yeah, right, absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to take this back because when I started to read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all the many, many treaties, at least 50 international human rights treaties at that point, that had come out of it, something really struck a chord in me. Uh, because... Um, I come from a family of immigrants. All, all four of my grandparents were migrants to this country at the turn of the last century. Uh, they, as I write in the, in the preface to the book, they didn't come on luxury liners. Um, they came uh, escaping a mixture of poverty, pogroms, persecution. And the vast majority of those who didn't come um, were, were murdered, uh, just not long, that, you know, only a decade or, or, or more, before I was born. And that had happened to them simply because, not because of any particular religious faith, many of them were extremely secular actually, um, but because they were defined as Jewish, deemed to be Jewish. And this was a very big (laughs) event to have been born into in one's own family. I I was very young when my mother told me about, I must have been about six or seven, when she told me about the trip to Paris she'd made, say ten years before I was born, to go and meet her first cousin for the first time. Um, because they had, the Red Cross had tracked her down, and he and his wife were the only members of that particular branch of my mother's family. We're talking first cousins, so we're talking quite close to a relative, um, who'd survived, and that meant large numbers hadn't. But they had both survived, and they'd married just before they'd been deported to Auschwitz. And my mother described how... You know, she was saying to them, well, you'll you're form a new life. We we're going to go and try and emigrate to Australia. My family is very anti-Zionist. Israel didn't come into it. We we're going to try and emigrate to Australia. And um, my mother said, you'll start a new life and you'll have a new family. And she said, tears came down her mm. cousin's wife's eyes the size of pebbles. And she said, there won't be any children, because she was experimented on by Mengele. So the, these kind of stories, you know, were what drove me personally to when I read the treaties that came out of that nightmare crucible of conflagration that the whole world had got caught up in, that so many groups had been destroyed simply because of a label, um, just, just that had led to this extraordinary explosion of international human rights treaties and the idea of human rights, I got there via Hackney Council, but suddenly I read something that spoke to the ghosts that existed before I was born. Yeah.
0: Now, in the late 80s, you you referred to that, when you joined what was then probably the National Council for Civil Liberties, but became Liberty. they just become Liberty? Just become Liberty. Yeah. There was this emulation of or echoing of the anti-Soviet human rights people in the shape of something called Charter 88 and what had happened was that there was this kind of movement in this country which I think you were involved in which was about saying we should change the constitution here and it was all tied, uh, it was all tied to the Bill of Rights 1689 we were having one of our periodic celebrations of the past at which this country if I may say so, excels <laughs> 1689 being very modern,
1: compared six, to 1215 compared to 1215
0: now, there's a point here, I think, about whether you were in favour of a Bill of Rights as early as 1989, 1988, because there was a big lively dispute on the left at the time. A lot of left people were anti, so they hadn't, as it were, embraced the Universal Declaration the way you described, you had done. But secondly, the Magna Carta, do you think it's an effective way of doing politics in this country to, to use the past in this way? Uh, do you think it was effective in 1989? It's a kind of an question for you, and maybe people won't be interested. But do you think Charter 88 was a success? And then, of course, your book is called A Magna Carta for All Humanity, so you're using it totally at the moment. I'd be interested in your view about the use of the past and Charter 88.
1: Okay, so let's take Charter 88 first. I mean, you know, you could, you could sort of measure it, because th- for those who aren't familiar with Charter 88, it came out of the Thatcher period. It was in 1988, that it was formed hence the term eighty eight but it was using the language of of the soviet uh, anti soviet um, um, some of groups that, was, that were being set up in Eastern Europe. One of them was called Charter. What was it called anyway? Seventy-seven. Charter seventy-seven. That's it. So it was emulating that Charter eighty-eight. And there was another
0: one called Samizdat as Samerstatt, well. Samizdat,
1: yeah. exactly. Um, just giving away our ages, isn't it? Yeah, kind of <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> I mean, Samizdat was an easily purchased uh, magazine, freely available in London. It's a bit of a contradiction in terms, but never mind. Uh, and so
1: it was emulating that in a completely different context. And um, it was very successful in persuading the then Labour opposition. Um, things go round and round you see um, a Labour opposition to support constitutional reform whilst it was ditching all its radical policies it needed to kind of demonstrate that it had some new nice sounding ones um, and so it was very successful Charter Age I think in persuading Labour to support the idea of a, of, a, of a Bill of Rights we'll come back to that I think later on <laughs> in terms of the detail and devolution and of course the Scotland Act, and the Wales Act, Northern Ireland had its own obvious, obvious own independent story um, And uh, freedom of information all came out of the demands of Charter 88, which was was basically saying that, you know, we need a constitutional revolution rather than a socialist revolution in this country. I was on the council, I was very involved in it. I was very aware that it was speaking in the idiom of the English language and English history. And I used the word English actually quite advisedly, although at the same time, it was very much defending the rights of Scottish people, the Welsh people, and the Northern Irish people to have their own assemblies. Um, and I had mixed feelings about that. And of course, that relates back to the book, because mm. um, I had become familiar with the, uh, what I was just describing, which was the aspiration for treating every human being of equal worth that came out of the horrors that that took place uh, in the 1930s and 40s uh, and which the whole world at some level virtually had got caught up in to some degree and out of that had come an insight about our common humanity which I felt Charter 88 wasn't necessarily fully considering in the way it (laughs) expressed itself looking at the past. Mm In, but in terms of the Magna Carta, which is what I yeah. think you're then asking me for. Okay. So um, we all know that this is the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta. I everyone in this room knows that. And if you don't, believe me, you're going to be told in the next <laughs> few weeks and months. Um, I, when I was a little girl I, and people used to ask me, what are your three best wishes? One of them always was time travel. I always wanted to travel back in time and see what life was like. I must admit, I never got quite to 12.15 in my imagination.
0: Oh, thank God for that. I thought you were going to say, at the age of six, you want to be in <laughs> Ronnie in
3: June j- oh. no, but
1: I did work for Ronnie Mead, so you know, clearly this was <laughs> always a driving force. Um, but when, when, it, it was, when I came to think I, I've got to write this book before I, before I retire from this period of my life, after 25 years working in human rights in one form um, or another... Um, for five years in in, in, in liberty and then 20 years in academia, Um, I thought that I'd like to sort of time travel in reverse because this extraordinary coincidence of 2015 being both the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta and the same moment in time where our Prime Minister um, is proud to say that we should be distancing ourselves from universal human rights, uh, that we should repeal uh, the Human Rights Act, which is based on universal human rights, replace it with something with the title British Bill of Rights uh, at the front of it, and take steps to consider withdrawing from the European Court of Human Rights and ultimately the European Convention on Human Rights. And it seemed a, a fantastic coincidence of events, and it seemed to me it was time to consider what would the barons have thought if they had been able to... Time travel in reverse and turn up now um, and find out that we've got this huge national celebration for their Magna Carta, which actually they considered to be a terrible failure at the time. It only lasted for three months before uh, it was annulled by the Pope at the persuasion of King John. There's much more to say about the Magna Carta. The Pope was the
0: European Court of Human Rights of the day, wasn't he?
1: Precisely, precisely, (laughs) absolutely. Um, And then you, you could imagine sort of Eleanor Roosevelt who was the person who said, let the Universal Declaration of Human Rights be an international magna carta for all people everywhere. She is really the source of the title of my book, just sort of, you know, made slightly less sexist, because she actually said, for all men everywhere, so I've ended up for all humanity. Um, But we get her point. What would she feel? if she you know, turned up here now. And she found that this Magna Carta that she drew inspiration from was actually being presented as where time should stand still and the universal human rights that she was the mover and shaker behind and which were... absolutely reflected in the European Convention on Human Rights are being dissed by the same society that she drew such inspiration from. Mm -hmm. And this is what drove me to want to write the book.
0: But is Magna Carta one of those things, Francesca, that it's much better off not to read? (laughs) That you can be really keen on something as long as you're steeped in the ignorance of it? Uh, what on earth does it have, you know, I'm not now giving you a little test on Magna yeah, Carta, can you draw me. anything out of Magna Oh, look, cards. Can you draw anything right out of it? You too. can, which you is can. actually speaking to
1: today. Yes, you can, you can. There's three and a half articles still on the Statute Book. It is the longest English enactment, and it is English, by the way. It is the longest English enactment on our Statute Book. Uh,
3: half um, an article is on the Statute Book?
1: It's, uh, three and a half. Oh, wow. No, it's not, it, two, yeah. two of them are now merged into one, okay. and the, the the famous one that everyone will recognise is no free man shall be seized or imprisoned, da-da-da, except by the lawful judgement of his peers or by the law of the land, and that is now merged with, with that was Article 39, it's now merged with another article which was 40 into one article which is, to no one will we deny or delay right or justice. And, I mean, these are pretty inspiring words when you think they're 800 years old. Um, It it doesn't bear a huge amount of scrutiny. Uh, I mean, you know, what's so wonderful is when you read a historian writing exactly 100 years ago, on the 700th anniversary of the Magna Carta, this is one of the most enjoyable aspects of writing and researching this book, is to read a historian who wrote on the 700th anniversary, uh, W.M. McKechnie, who was saying uh, this really is um, uh, an anachronism, to think that this is the source of our liberties today, and this was 100 years ago. Or if you read Holt, who wrote, uh, I think, about 40 years ago, he said the Magna Carta survived more by propaganda than by law now it is fascinating to talk about the myth, myth of the propaganda and why it has had such symbolism down
4: the, mm. down
1: the ages but in terms of the law in terms of the law i mean if to no one would, was was justice delayed and right delayed or denied would the suspects who were detained indefinitely in Belmars have had to use the human rights act to get a remedy rather than the Magna Carta. Would those who were subject to what is effectively house arrest, that is a control order, and this is very much in the news now, it's been changed, by the way, by this government from a control order to a T-PIM, you know, like, sounds so harmless, like, let's go out and have a gin and tonic and a T-PIM, but it's effectively a form of house arrest. Would, would the suspects who've been put under house arrest, and we can have a debate about whether that's radicalised people further or not, Would they have you had to use the Human Rights Act to modify the terms of their house arrest if the Magna Carta had in fact provided what it says on the tin. And to no one, to no one will we deny deny or delay justice or right. And in fact, that no one was always very circumscribed. At the time that the Magna Carta was sealed, it's estimated about ten to twenty percent of the population. Was, but ...was impacted by it.
0: Counted as. Was
1: counted people. as a free man. Yeah. Women were clearly not free men, not just because of the language... ...but because they have their own little clauses about... ...forced marriage is regulated. It's regulated. Uh, it's not abolished, but it's regulated such that you mustn't be disparaged. In other words, you mustn't be forced to marry someone of a lower status than yourself. Um, serfs are basically invisible... Um, And the other group that's singled out are, as it just so happens, and speaks to me again personally, Jews. Jewish people people who are clearly not free men, and I won't go into the unpleasant way they're talked about in the Magna Carta right now. But it's quite clear that the Magna Carta has some inspiring terms, but it is a product of medieval England, of medieval Europe. Why wouldn't it be?
0: Yeah. Now, your subtitle is Homing In on Human Rights. So it's Magna Carta for All Humanity. And so you're drawing from Magna Carta uh, an insight about human rights that you're now fleshing out. And I suppose I'm wondering, the theme of this whole event is foundations, you know. Uh, where's, the, where's the ethic in, 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 in human rights to contrast, say, with Magna Carta? Or actually, is human rights just rooted in foundations of the past. So its truth lies only in the fact of our being able to describe past documents as reflecting it. Or is there more to human rights than that? You implied there was when you said that you didn't like (coughs) the way in which Charter 88 was concentrated so much in the past. Where's the ethic in human rights? Where's the values? It's just Magna Carta recycled for today?
1: Well, it's actually, you know, first of all, people... Most people, I think, I mean, everyone in this room will have a, their own take on what human rights are, and I imagine that most people coming to the literary festival at LSC will not necessarily believe everything they read in the newspapers about human rights. But I suspect if I were to ask you to put a show of hands, a lot of you would equate human rights with civil liberties, and a lot of people in Britain create, associate civil liberties with something from the past, something sort of quintu- quintessentially... English, Stroke, British question mark. Um, I do need to interrupt myself just here, um, and anyone Scottish in the audience can help me pronounce this correctly. The Treaty of Arabuff How do you pronounce Scottish
4: it?: Scottish
0: people? Abruz. Abbro: I it think is, sir, you might even be from Haveroth. you were so enthusiastic about that.
1: Abth. <laughs> It sounds like a broth with a nice Scottish accent, doesn't it, as opposed to mine. Um, <laughs> Thank you. It is, I mean, you probably know it far better than me. It was written uh, nearly 100 years, I think it is, after the Magna Carta. But it really strikes you. The, I mean, it's basically a declara- another appeal to the European Court of Human Rights called the Pope at the time. And it's an appeal for independence uh, from England, ring a bell. As I say, history also goes round in circles. It doesn't just go in a linear form. But the universalism, It's fascinating compared to the Magna Carta, the universalism within the Treaty of Erbroth Arbroath. people People who know they beat Bon
0: Accord 36 <laughs> nil will know abroad, won't they? So if you know your football, you know abroad. The biggest Ar-broth. ever win in a football match in the history of football. <laughs>
1: football is definitely my weakness. Talks about there shall be no distinction. It quotes Christ, I think, or quotes the Gospels, rather. There shall be no distinction between Scots and English, Greek and Jew... It's, it is such a contrast in the Magna Carta in that sense and this is very interesting thinking about discourse today um, but the, the point about post war universal human rights the whole thinking mm-hmm. is that it is a dramatic in my opinion and my analysis shift from what went before that's the whole point about it mm-hmm. if we think a, a way into this discussion from my point of view would be to think about Charlie Hebdo and the reaction of people in uh, France and also Europe of wanting to reclaim what they call as Enlightenment values, which means I should be able to say what I want, I shouldn't care who I offend, there's no right not to be offended, etc. When the drafters sat down at the end of the Second World War to draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, they didn't say, how can we defend Enlightenment values? They said, what has gone so completely, hopelessly wrong with Enlightenment values? How did it happen that here in so-called civilised Europe, the most uncivilised, barbaric, to use their terms, uh, uh, acts which have um, uh, impacted... See, I have to have my my cards right. It was a response. This is the the, um, preamble, the Universal Declaration Mm -hmm. of Human Rights, written as a response to the barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind. It was an attempt not at self-praise at saying, aren't we wonderful? We shall ignore everything we did in the name of empire, the, 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 the torture in Kenya, the uh, annihilation in Amritsar, and say, England stands for liberty. It was quite the reverse. It was human beings coming from not the whole of the world, because the whole of uh, sub-Saharan Africa was, of course, still colonised, but more or less every other region in the world coming together and saying, we as human beings... We have, you know, I have to be polite at this time of the day, but we have seriously mucked up uh, for a very long time. And all this talk about enlightenment values and progress and rationality, look where we've got to. What can we learn from the wisdom of the ages? And Dr. Malik from the Lebanese delegate said, we are in want of poets, philosophers and prophets And we need to look at the light of all time to understand how human beings can behave this way with each other and what the way forward is. I mean, what
0: does does that mean, the light of all time? Like, if we rule out, say, just history as a foundation of human rights, and we obviously rule out just the fact of law, uh, that's just creating something else, but it must stem from something, so it begs questions, and it's not the Enlightenment... I mean, is it religion, maybe? Where where does this thing come from? Why do people care in the way that you're describing? What's the ethic?
1: I think the first thing is to understand that the, the, the project, the end of the Second World War, to create international, universal, and universal human rights, and by the way, they originally thought they were going to call the Declaration the International Declaration of Human Rights, and they decided at the third reading when virtually every every delegate from the whole of the UN was involved in the discussion by then to change it to universal from international. Because this wasn't about states, this was about human beings. This was a deliberate attempt to craft an ethic. And it can sound, we talked at the beginning, you and I, Connor, about how in our youth, socialists, we thought human rights was very wishy-washy and liberal. And I recognise, as I'm saying it, it can sound like that. But I think throughout human time and that's what dr malik was trying to say human beings have ne- have searched For a way to make sense of being on this earth and how do we live with each other? Mm -hmm. And yes, that has been one of the foundations of the great religions. But what what they were trying to say is the whole of humanity living together. It's not instead of different belief systems. I mean, the people that crafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were Marxists, socialists, social democrats, liberals, conservatives, Muslims, Christians, Hindus, Confucians. It, It wasn't instead, but it was saying, is there something we can now learn? From the fact that we're all going to kill each other if we carry on like this. It's, it's very simple talk. Out of that has come, out of that has come, 50 international human rights treaties, I think it's about 57 now, you know, which are <laughs> enforced in law to some varying degrees, um, both either through the constitutions of many, many countries around the world or through uh, international human rights bodies, whether they are quasi-judicial like the UN Human Rights Committee or actually judicial like the European Court of Human Rights trying to help us put a mirror up to ourselves which doesn't look back to the, to the past and stay there, but says we look at the past so that we can learn from the wisdom of the ages and then go to the future. A set of stand, minimal standards to live by, but aspirations to look forward to. But, uh, That's all it is, human rights.
0: Supposing you to put another point of view, which is that after the war there was a tremendous push to have a serious commitment to human rights, yeah. and that would have meant a justiciable intervention by an international body... And the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a kind of consolation prize for the people who lost. And the people who lost were the nations that were still subjugated by colonial powers, that the great (coughs) powers decided they couldn't be bothered with human rights, and that all these human rights uh, sort of great people like uh, Lauterpacht and so on were really sceptical about the Universal Declaration.
1: Yeah, he was sceptical. I mean, is that, does
0: that not undermine your rather dramatic claims about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights?
1: I think it's quite the contrary. I think the fact that I mean, greatest respect for someone like Lauterpacht, but I think the fact that those who really saw human rights as purely a legalistic framework and a continuation of the Enlightenment felt disillusioned by it is all to its credit, in my personal opinion. I mean, the real test, I mean, you know, because I could talk about this all day and all week, but you will have gone by then. You know, Connor said you've got to stay till six. I know you will have gone by the time I've, I'm bored with the subject. <laughs> but, but, but I think one test for the point you're making um, is practice, the word praxis. Uh, the most fascinating thing is these debates went on. At the time that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was, was adopted in 1948, the, the American Anthropological Association quite rightly said, you know, this is Western hegemonic thought, this is just like the Enlightenment, in fact, because what, it, what, was, the, what was the problem with the Enlightenment? The, impli- the, impli- the problem with the Enlightenment was an attempt to universalise Western values, to say you shall be liberal, you shall be tolerant, you know, as, as Sayla Ben-Habib says, the, the, the brilliant if you don't know her, because I do tend to find that men get quoted a lot more than women in the academic literature on human rights, can't think why, but I really recommend Sayla ha- Ben-Habib <clears throat> to you, and she says the problem with, with the Enlightenment is it only tolerated the other if the other was like you, mm. you know, and uh, the, the, the real, st- and so at the time of the, the Universal Declaration was adopted, the American Anthropological Association said this is Western imperial thought, and every culture should be equally respected, there are no Universal values. blah, blah, blah. The really interesting, really interesting issue now, you know, sixty-six years on, and it is quite a long time, it's not as long as 800 years, but it's a reasonable amount of time. It's that you have human rights practice all over the world. Of course you have conflicts and debates. You have the anti-human rights practice and people who disagree with it and say, you know, what is this Western idea? But the truth is that you know everywhere you want to look in the world, Burma, Egypt, Palestine, Iran, you name it, every day of the week you can read about a human rights campaign, human rights defenders. It has, you know, it isn't the totality of thinking, it isn't the totality of politics, but it has a purchase in reality.
0: what's interesting about that, really interesting, is you are not looking at it as a legal subject. So you Mm. started that by talking about the 50, whatever it is, seven treaties and so on, which create a kind of international law. But that's not how you end. And you're really, one of the purposes of the book, as I remember from reading it in draft, was trying to get across this idea that human rights is about more than, greater than law. And that's the way you've ended there. Do you think law is an enemy of human rights or a friend of human rights? Most people think it is a legal subject, you know. What's the relationship between law and human rights?
1: Well, when you all buy the book, you will see that I discuss this at great length. But to try and answer it simply here, I mean, uh, Judge Rabindu Singh, who is a a friend of ours, both um, put it extremely well at a conference, of course, on the Magna Carta, there's one every other week this year, um, saying that human rights are not primarily a legal concept, Concept. They are, they are a moral concept. Now, the draft of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, of course, it was never intended to be legally enforceable. Or they decided very early on that they couldn't get away with it being, frankly, a legally enforceable document. So they described it endlessly. You know, all the drafters constantly use words like moral, ethic, conscience. They were very clear about it. But the. the To my mind, it was a very fortunate thing that they couldn't initially start with a legally enforceable Mm. document because they had to think about what is what is human rights are about? What is the sort of questions they ask themselves are the questions moral philosophers ask? Uh, And indeed, they they drew on this symposium before we had, you know, the concept of virtual. There was a virtual symposium by to which who contributed. Aldous Huxley, Gandhi, Lasky, um, what was that famous, you'll know him, famous Catholic um, philosopher? <laughs> Maritain. Mar- <laughs> Mar- 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 um And, and, they, and they, they wrote, they sent their thoughts about what this Universal Declaration should be to the, to the, to the um, drafters. And so they, they weren't by now thinking about law, they were thinking about ethics and moral philosophy. But... The deeper answer to the question is this, you know, right back to the Enlightenment when you first start to get these phrases, and of course you can trace them to the Bible, and you can trace them to the Quran, you can trace them to the Code of Harambari, but in terms of a political movement, it's fair to trace the idea of rights, I think, to the European Enlightenment. You get this whole question about legal positivism. Mm-hmm. What is, you know, you know, this whole debate, you know, Jeremy Bentham famously saying human rights are nonsense and... Uh, indes- indescriptible, nonsense rights, indescribable, indeliable yeah. rights, and nonsense on stilts. Because if you don't have a duty bearer, if they're not enforced in law. You can't have a legal right. But the point of human rights was to find a framework by which you would judge the law. That's the point. You know, if it, if it is simply the law, if it is simply the law, then what it, what is human rights becomes whatever the law says it is. And how do you know whether it's right. complying Can with I human rights there, or not? Francesca?
0: Law? If you then make human rights part of a higher law. You're getting the law to judge the law. So it becomes a kind of trap, doesn't it? Because the judges declare what rights are. And that's let's face it, that can be in opposition to the moral dimensions of rights that you're talking about. Because
1: it can't be determined. Human rights is, is an ethic, it's an argument, it's a set of values. And that's why that's why for those good-hearted people who really hope that it could all be settled now because human rights... There they are in all these international treaties. And even if we don't like the domestic human rights laws, you said, we can have a higher law that can determine it. Right. I, it's really sad because this debate will never end. You cannot safeguard human rights through the law. You can only safeguard human rights through debate, through argument and through practice above all.
0: And through moral judgment. I'm reminded Absolutely. of Martin Luther King. You know, Martin Luther King said, I don't have to obey a law which is not a moral law. And he didn't use the language of human rights in the letter from Birmingham Jail, but he well, talked about he the absolute. Later, layer, he does. I know absolute certainty that he could evaluate laws. Now, can we say about say an interpretation of the Human Rights Act by the Supreme Court, which says <laughs> that certain horrible things are allowed, which we, in our ethic and so on, in our discourse and in our practice, think shouldn't be allowed? Can we say that's not a law? You know, well, it's a law.
1: Of course it's a law. So in I a brother's to... commerce
0: law, but it's, it's a breach of the ethic of human rights. Yeah,
1: we must be able to say it. We must be able to say it or we create a judo, what's it called? when it's law by, law by judges instead of ruled by gods. Oh, yeah,
0: you Ewing's idea was
1: juristocracy. That's it, juristocracy, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, we started yeah. off, by the way, what Conor hasn't told you, is disagreeing on all this. In fact, that's how we met. We were informally introduced in order to fight each other to the death, like a sort of <laughs> Roman duel in liberty. He doesn't like me to say the date, so I'll, I'll spare him that. No. But it's a long time ago, long before we worked at King's together. And... I was apparently on the side of a Bill of Rights based on uh, the European Convention on Human Rights, and he was apparently against it. And he, of course, beat me into the ground pulp. He was so successful that Liberty still produced a Bill of Rights uh, based on the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, But over the years... would it be fair to say our ideas have converged hugely?
0: Uh, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. <laughs> I'm not getting into this complicated Jesuitical argument.
1: So I think I think okay. That's called Sabrano. Let's, let's, let's say this. We do agree, I think that um, what did Keith call it? Keith Ewing. It? Aristocracy. Aristocracy is the ultimate nightmare of where human rights can lead, and it is part of the problem we're in now in this country now, where you know people's understanding of human rights is taken from the last case as re, as deliberately reinstated by the last piece in the newspaper, where you have winners and losers. And no-one has any idea what the common denominator between the, of the thinking is, what the ethic is. And so we have a huge backlash against human rights. Uh, I think human rights is an argument. And in fact, it's what you say it is, Connor. He does, I agree with him, he doesn't agree with me, but I'm happy to say that I agree with him. Um, it's a visibility project, Connor said. That's what human rights is, it's a visibility project. And I want to just add a little bit to what you've said and see what you think, Connor. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I was thinking about this. Unfortunately, I didn't put it in my book cause I only thought about it afterwards. But it seems to me that human rights is, in a way, a project which is the sort of reverse of the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Because it's, it, by having an ethic, based on a text, the Universal Declaration, you have to have a text to have an ethic. There's a text, there's an ethic, then there's an argument, and there's practice. Through that process, you shine a light, and so you see the evil. You voice your opposition, so you hear the evil. And by doing that, you then uh, give voice to the people who are experiencing the evil, so that they can speak it. Through that visibility project, and that's just fleshing out your visibility project, you then have aspirations for a better life. Mm -hmm. And you can say, well, this is so vague. How do you know something is human rights? How do you know something isn't? Well, when you look at, if you like, and I respect them, Marxist texts, religious texts, liberal texts, you know the difference between a human rights argument and those. Mm -hmm. And then you know that human rights has some substance.
0: Right. And that allows you to push for a law as a space within which people can, as it were, reverse the hear-no-evil, see-no-evil thing. So the law, the Human Rights Act, let's face it, you were very involved, and not skirted around it, you were very involved in producing a really unusual legal text, the Human Rights Act, and what's, if I may say so, unusual about it is you tried to square the democratic and the judicial circles by this Declaration of Incompatibility, and it's a clever document, Uh, Is that because you saw that the Human Rights Act could somehow be a platform for what you've just described?
2: That litigation has a role
0: to play?
1: For sure. I mean, I wrote in the book, and I think I agree with it. Somebody might want to pick me up on this later and persuade me I don't agree with it. That that human rights, that the values, it's an ethic, but it has to be capable of legal expression. In other words, the law doesn't encompass it all, but you have to be able for it to be a human right to turn it into a, an aspect of what you're saying into law. If you yeah, follow me, yeah, yeah. Um, And that's what we were trying to do through the human rights act, for sure. That is truth. Because when they drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and I'm sorry to sound a bit like you know one of those religious people that keeps going back to my Bible, but when you when they drafted it, they, there was a sort of moment of. Wisdom, I think, that that led to its drafting. And they talked about, just as the word human transforms the word right, and very often in this discourse people are only talking about the right aspect of this equation and not the human rights. So when they said that in order to do human rights, you have to combine reason and conscience, I think that was an enormous conceptual way forward from the Enlightenment worship of reason. But conscience on its own without reason is pretty flimsy. And the law is, if you like, the concrete manifestation of reason. It's thinking how do you actually apply this uh, in a logical, rational way. And therefore, it is an essential tool to achieve human rights. But it isn't human rights, mm-hmm. it is just a tool.
0: But that's, I think that's persuasive. But I bet you that's not what you said to Jack Straw.
1: You know, there's right. so a lot of sell. things I'd like to say to Jack Straw Brault, week, as
0: Jack Straw's in a bit of trouble he's the Home Secretary who introduced this Human Rights Act way back in the late 90s early 90s what, how did it come to be the case that a Labour administration enacted the Human Rights Act what were the, the selling points that got the thing through and how did how did the people who came up with it, including prominently yourself, but the Declaration of Incompatibility mechanism, just to be a bit of an anorak for a moment, how did, how did that come up and how did you get it through, or how did people get it through?
1: Well, Charter 88 put it on the agenda, you know I mean, if you, if you read, seriously now if you are interested in this story, I do go into it in, in, in the book um, it, it was a moment in time, it was a moment in time because we had three, three or four three I think it was Conservative governments elected on a minority vote. So people were questioning the the democratic system, much as they are now. Um, The new Labour was being born, and new Labour, as I mentioned earlier, was ditching a lot of old Labour policies and was looking for some new ones. Um, The... It is quite extraordinary, really, that we did persuade them to introduce something that they called the Human Rights Act, by the way. You- I can castigate myself here, because I was part of a group that was trying to persuade them to call it something else at oh. the time, um, which doesn't look to the past rather than to the future, and didn't have the word human in it. But we thought the People's Charter was what Liberty called it, because that was what the Chartists called their charter... British Bill of Rights, we were perfectly comfortable with at the time, provided that it was based on universal human rights, because we were worried that people wouldn't know what human rights yeah. were. And and we it wasn't sort of English, it wasn't, so sort of hard, wasn't sort of British. It wasn't sort of British and it wouldn't resonate, and I wrote a paper, which I found in writing this book, and I completely forgot I'd written, I was really amazed when I read it. And I thought, oh, I agree with that. Well, um, but you were right, weren't
0: you? I mean, there has been a problem that people have thought it's not British. If you yeah. called it a British Bill of Rights, yeah. and instead of putting the European they Convention wouldn't. in the schedule like people who couldn't be bothered to make up their own rights. Mm. It would be a more successful mm. act now, wouldn't it? I mean, there is an important truth to the criticism you made at the time.
1: The, well, several of us did. Yeah, there is. And it wouldn't have happened as, as well, without doubt, if we hadn't come up with a mechanism, and that's the task that Jack Straw once, Tony Blair, continued what was originally John Smith's policy... John Smith was a Scottish constitutional reformer, and he really believed in it, and, and, sat, and he died prematurely, as, as, as everyone knows. And Tony Blair was saddled with this policy, and I, I was um, working at Liberty still. And that's how I... I was just in the right place at the right time, or the wrong place at the wrong time, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, and so I, as director of their research arm, was sent to meet Tony Blair. It's just chance. It could have been anybody. Um, and the first thing he said to me, he sat down in this room, was, Francesca, I am, you know, I, we're going to honour John Smith's commitment to this, but I have to tell you, I personally don't believe in bills of rights. And I said to him, well, if you mean because judges can have the final say in the law, I've been talking to Conor Gierti, so I don't believe in them either. <laughs> um, and what we then pushed, put on to, to you know, it was Jack Straw, who, who c- continued the policy because he was Shadow Home Secretary, and he set us the task. We had to come up with a model where judges would not be able to overturn Acts of Parliament as they can in the Supreme Court in America or Canada or Germany. And if we hadn't come up with a model that resolved that problem, there wasn't going to be a Bill of Rights. Mm. And so, you know, like anything else, when you are set a challenge, you, you meet it, don't mm-hmm. you?
0: Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's been interesting. It's been picked up by a lot of other countries, this Declaration of Incompatibility idea, non-enforceable. Declaration. For lawyers, it's kind of heresy, but for political legal lawyers, it's kind of fun because it puts law in the political rather than outside it.
1: Well, it was at King's College Law School. Uh, uh, by this time, I had been appointed, as you know, and that's how Connor and I actually became colleagues rather than enemies. Um, <laughs> Colleagues uh, are always the worst enemy aren't <laughs> they? <true>. Um, <laughs> Not that the, we were. The truth is that everything I I proposed, I showed Conrad That I used to leave little notes in his. Do you remember this? No, I don't. Yeah, he's trying. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: mean, this
1: because, is becoming because, no, because, at like like time, because at the time, at <laughs> time, he was meant to be totally opposed to all this. But I would leave in his pigeonhole. Would, <laughs> would you just have a look at this, please? You know, and every time I would get a response, it was extremely helpful. So he doesn't like to admit he had a far bigger role than he did in it. But um, but it was indirect, I admit. Um, and in, in, in brown envelopes. Um, yes, so uh, K- Professor Blackburn, Robert Blackburn at King's College Law School set up uh, a project, human rights incorporation project, to look at how we could incorporate the European Convention on Human Rights into UK law. I happened to get the job. You know, these things are such a chance, Parley.
4: Um,
1: and then my whole job, that's all I had to do all day, every day, was go in the library, look at every model of a Bill of Rights in the world, look at what the problems were, and try and come up with a way that we could have something that would stand up as a Bill of Rights, in, in that it would be a higher law with this universal ethic in, in, incorporated in it, but would, not, but would still allow Parliament to have the final say in what the law of the land is. That was the challenge. Well, if that's all you do every day, you know, all day, every day for four or five years, you better come up with an answer. You mm-hmm. know, you'd be really, really poor if you didn't. So it wasn't that extraordinary, really.
0: We're going to go to the audience in a minute, but I can't help but ask you this Is there a degree of concern that one of the paradoxes of your achievement is that the Human Rights Act can be repealed? <laughs> because by going for a politically embedded rather than a supra political document, it is possible for a political party, to go on an election manifesto and say we can repeal it. And the logic of your position is they have to be able to do that. You will fight them and so on, but that is fair game.
1: Well, this is where everybody in this room and all the people you know and everyone you're on Facebook with and everyone who follows you on Twitter comes in. Because in the end of the day... You know, we, we manage in this country to get something called the Human Rights Act. Um, I mean, I've got lists here of all the people that have benefited. You know, there's a list in my, in my books. Somewhere my, my colleague and Zoe has got booklets that we've got here for free that's got list. Zoe, so
0: did
4: you remember to bring those three booklets?
1: <laughs> <People>. <laughs> They've right. got a list the, of people. The free booklets all end. around. Good, the, well I done. I think there's a list at the end. Uh, Helen Wildball, sitting in the middle, very quietly, and worked with me on the Human Rights Incorporation project for here, has produced the most brilliant research about who's benefited under the Human Rights Act. You know, these people have benefited because we've had a higher law which fills in the gaps when specific legislation is silent or indifferent. That's what bills of rights do. But it is an ordinary Act of Parliament. It can be repealed. I still stand by that. And if people don't fight to defend it, we'll lose it. And in the end, it's down to all of us.
0: Do you think it would still be last question for me? Do you think it will still be there in five years?
1: Well, I don't want to have the last answer being depending who wins the election, but it's a pretty depressing answer, but that's the honest truth. I think the Conservative... Party, and this is not a party political point; it's just a description of, you know, of, of party's own self-definition. Have said that if they are elected, they will very speedily repeal the Human Rights Act. They will demand of the European Court of Human Rights that their rulings become advisory, which their own former uh, Attorney General Dominic Grieve described as a breach of the fundamental principles of international human rights law. Uh, therefore, we would have to leave the European. Uh, Convention on Human Rights, because you cannot be a member of it and not abide by the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights. The Council of Europe immediately made that clear. Uh, if Britain leaves, the whole edifice could crumble. Um, the other parties almost certainly won't go down this route. But they, but but but, but you know, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Any political party would go down that route if they were in power and people don't stop them. And I have to tell you that having introduced the Human Rights Act, the new, new Labour really regretted it. If you didn't notice that, take it from me. And would have got rid of it if they could have and people stopped them doing so. Mm. The difference is that they are not boasting it in their manifesto that they will. So mm. vigilance will never be over, I'm mm. afraid. Mm.
0: Thank you. Uh, time for Q&A. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let catch my eye if anybody wants to catch my eye maybe there's none there's a gentleman already caught my eye the our broth man has priority instant priority who will now tell us about the match and what the halftime score was I'm going to apply rigorous gender diversity controls, I'm looking for, a, and we have three, but we're now favouring the right, so can, can the left think hard about intervening? Uh, gentleman has the microphone, I think you should tr- say who you are unless you especially don't want to, and it's going to be pretty brief questions, we're going to try and keep this moving.
3: Sir. Um, w- well, uh, John Holbrook, I'm a barrister and I'm also right for Spiked Online. Um, I, I'm very much looking forward to your book because I loved your last book, Values for a Godless Age. It seemed to me you really captured the spirit that led to the Human Rights Act being introduced, um, namely that there had been a collapse of both the grand narratives on both the left and the right. And you Thank obviously you that hoped...
1: Much better than me, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, OK, you're, you're, can we get you're, a you're
0: move
3: on here? I think there's too much of this
0: praise <laughs> going <yeah>. on. We're <laughs> setting not, a bad tone. Can we get... Don't worry.
3: It's not going to last. Good man, John. <laughs> Um, and you rather hoped that the Human Rights Act it's was continuing. going to, w- w- was going to sort of be the saviour for humanity. It would be a document that people would sign up to; they would support enthusiastically. It seems to me you, you no longer have that enthusiasm. Particularly when Conor asked you, "Is it going to last?" You're not too sure. And it was interesting that you said even the Labour Party would like to get rid of it if it could. The truth of the matter is that human rights have not captured the public's imagination. It's not just a problem of, of, of there being a right-wing press. It's just that it seems to me, and this is what I'd like you to comment on, it, it is the problem with the human rights project that it is essentially an elite project. It, it goes down very well with the sorts of people who come to these lectures. Uh, it goes down very well with lawyers, and there's a very good reason for that, and that is that what is a human right these days? It is essentially simply a gateway by which a political problem gets kicked into a legal sphere. Getting an issue through one of the articles means that the judiciary decide it. We see that with whether prisoners can vote, whether or not you should have assisted suicide, whether or not welfare benefit reforms are lawful. You know, these are not fundamentally legal questions. They are political questions that should be resolved in the political sphere. And they are being kicked into the legal sphere by human rights. And I actually think that that's why you're so enthusiastic about it, because you don't support Enlightenment values. You don't fundamentally like democracy, because, as you said, (laughs) it gave us four Thatcher terms. You know, it doesn't support the people who, in the 1980s, used to work for Hackney Council. Uh, 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 your Your politics have been killed off. So you no longer support the idea of democracy, and you're quite happy for this elite project and, and in, having the judiciary lord it over us
0: fantastic john thank you very much. that is a really helpful thing to hear because i think there is often an issue about our community supporting each other so that's really ha- i'm very interested in what i'm going to hear on that uh, sir have you got a microphone yet Hi. and we're going to have a microphone down here directly after why not yes. yeah
4: sir. Okay. My, my name's ian Orr and i had a career working in the UK diplomatic service, which brings you up against quite a lot of human rights issues. Uh, would it make a difference if we talked not about human rights, but about human duties? And after all, the... And I'd like to know what, in terms of Magna Carta, what things does it specify which are which can only be performed by the state? In other words, creating a legal framework by which you can be judged by your peers and the rather different area of uh, being able to enforce judgments against individuals who have infringed uh, other people's rights or who have not carried out their duties as human beings, for example, murderers. you know, the, the, the state uh, is responsible for bringing murderers to justice, even when the person whose rights are infringed are dead.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dean. And I'm thinking about that working group you would label with human rights and responsibilities. So to be something we haven't talked about and good to have. Uh, Last one in this wave, yes.
5: Anna Johnson, I'm a graduate student at the Gender Institute here. Um, Francesca, I'd be really interested to hear a little bit more about your responses to critiques of the whole human rights um, framework. In particular, I have in mind a feminist critique that says, well, the whole rights discourse is too embedded in a liberal individualist sort of model. Um, And also the coloniality critique. Um, And I'm thinking of the concern that the human rights discourse has been mobilised by certain countries in the global north to discipline certain countries in the global south, such as the, um, the US saying it was invading Afghanistan purportedly to liberate uh, women whose human rights were being abused, that sort of thing.
0: Great. Great uh, questions. Nicely detaching yourself from it. Not sure if you believe both. You have, <laughs> you have friends who do, so this is, you've kept your human rights position intact with your <laughs> critique, but very interesting. There's, there's a, a lot of stuff and um, we want to go lots of yeah. times around, but take your time on these yeah. quite important questions.
1: Great questions. Question. <coughs> Fantastic questions. Can I do them in reverse order? Um, sure. So, Anne, um, you're going to have to buy my book, <laughs> because I, I, I think, would you not agree, Connor, I, I spend a lot of time on the but book.
2: But not Anna alone. The, the uh, whole
0: crowd has to buy. The
1: <laughs> addressing the critiques. Yeah, so yeah. It, it is a big part of the book, um, rather than promoting, just promoting the idea. Um, I, I think that the way human rights is very, very easily, easy to exploit. I mean, it is, it is a loose idea, isn't it? So it's not surprising that it is, um, and because it has had some cachet, actually, uh, it's not surprising that it is a- appropriated by all sorts of groups and causes, uh, and, and none better, of course, than the wages of the war on terror, uh, who, who, who insisted on killing people in order to support their right, right to life. Um, there's, I Actually, very interestingly though, I did a sort of discourse analysis of George Bush's speeches, and I couldn't find the face human rights. I kept finding freedom and democracy, freedom, liberty, democracy, um, so it, it, it is. In, I found that quite interesting. Um, but we often hear human rights when we hear those words, and we see them as all interchangeable. And of course, part of the point in my book is to say no, they're not, because there is a text and there is a, an ethic, and I can describe that ethic. And quite clearly, beyond all doubt, <laughs> uh, those actions were not in conformity with that ethic. Um, you know, women around the world call themselves human rights defenders, and other women have created a very reasonable one that I have a huge amount of sympathy feminist critique of human rights. I think that critique of human rights from a feminist point of view is far more suitably addressed to enlightenment values than what I understand to be post-war second, second wave human rights. Why do I say that? And this leads us straight back to the Magna Carta. Because I think there is a discourse about individual freedom and liberty which was crafted, frankly, in the image of mainly <coughs> white uh, European men for whom getting the state off your back was the most important, you know, freedom that they could think of. Um, and a lot of women said, not only does that not speak to me, but that actually licenses him to do what he wants in his own home. Keir Starmer, the former director of public prosecutions, has gone on the record saying, I know that there's a view out there that, you know, human rights are a criminals charter, but the truth about the Human Rights Act, which is a second-wave post-war universal human rights Treaty. That's what it is. It's the European Convention on Human Rights in our law, but interpreted by our own judges in our own way. In our own way. It, is, it has done very little. It's done a little bit. It has you know, tweaked the edges uh, of the rights of t- terror suspects and criminals and prisoners. But where it has made absolutely major inroads, I mean major now, is victims' rights, in particularly victims of domestic violence and child abuse. Now, This is counterintuitive if you get your knowledge from the press. And there's not, you know, we can have a discussion why this particular day-in, day-out war has been waged. There is a self-interest of the press because they didn't like the right to privacy that was introduced to the Human Rights Act. And if I ran a newspaper, I'd feel the same, because if, you're, you know, if, you, if your whole business is anyway in big trouble, and they are in big trouble in the digital age, this is all you need this like a hole in the head, and you've got an organ every day to say, this is bad, we can get rid of it, this is bad, we can get rid of it. You would, if you're running a business, do that. But, the, you know, it's, it's not me saying this. This is the Director of Public Prosecutions who's gone and spent the last five years of his life prosecuting <laughs> <the> <laughs> people. And what he has written and given chapter and verse on is how... Human Rights Act has helped women in this particular way but why has it? Because the second wave um, post Second World War framework is about an ethic of how human beings are with each other. And because it's law and it fills in the gaps where statute is silent, and there was big gaps in terms of, you know, there being any way of, for example, forcing prosecutions and investigations when none took place. Think of the taxi driver. You'll know that case, you know, raped 20, 28 women or whatever. Human Rights Act case was one saying that those investigations... That case was not properly investigated. And why was the Human Rights Act able to deliver on that? It was because the criminal law was silent about saying there is an obligation to investigate where you have this kind of evidence. And what bills of rights, based on universal principles, not on old enlightenment, the individual and the state, but saying relationships between human beings are part of what matters in human rights terms, because there was no individual law, criminal law, that dealt with it, so the human rights act fills in the gaps because it acts as a bill of rights. So that's my answer to that one. Um, <laughs> duties. Well, Tom Payne, I haven't written this down on my big cards, so now I've got to use my, my memory and... and, and um, I'm worrying now, I'm getting a, a... What's the wonderful phrase of the week? A, a brain fade. And oh, uh, Natalie
3: Bennett, I think we call uh, her.
1: Who I, who I love even more, because as a woman, she's prepared to admit what I'm preparing to admit now, which is I'm getting a, a brain fade. But Tom Paine famously said, you know, they complained when they um, passed the French Declaration of the Rights of Man that why wasn't there a French Declaration of Duties... And Tom Paine wrote. Uh, they thought about. They, they thought, but they erred because they didn't think deeply enough. The Declaration of Rights is by definition a declaration of duties because, in order to have my right, I require you to, to respect it. I mean, that's a very, very fine, and he meant it, and he, there was a lot in it, Enlightenment principle. But as I try to explain, when they came to draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the text from which all the rest of it stems, they spent. Oh, probably longer on this issue than any other. I, I know this is all counterintuitive, but I'm just telling you what my research and many other researchers have found. This was the issue for them. What do we say about what human beings owe each other? What do they owe the state? What do they owe the community? Easy to think about the rights, because they were sort of in the Enlightenment ether, but it's gone wrong. You know, we've got all these rights against the state, and then people are going around murdering each other, you know, um, telling off their neighbours and, and uh, to the secret police and then going and taking over their homes when they've been taken off to the camps. You know, it's obviously not worked. So the discussion about what human beings owe to each other was the, the, probably that and the issue of colonialism were the two issues that vexed the drafters most. Um, and within the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a, an article which says individuals owe duty to the communities through which alone the personality can develop. In other words, we are social beings. We are not these isolated individuals that John Rawls and other more modern Enlightenment thinkers have written about. It, it, it just doesn't go there. It starts from the understanding that we're part of a society, all part of the human family, as the preamble to the Universal Declaration of the Rights says. Therefore, we owe obligations and duties to each other. The question is how you how you materialise that in law. Now, of course, for what you said, and I wrote down what you said, enforce judgments. Uh, against those who who infringe others' rights, of course, that's what the criminal law is about. It is about that. So we do have a whole, you know, in a set of laws that deal with that. But the European Convention on Human Rights, applied by the European Court of Human Rights, very early on, well, fairly early on in the 80s, started to say that there is an obligation on states to provide an adequate criminal law. Uh, not just in order to deal with crimes that have taken place, but to deter people from committing crimes, because under human rights thinking, people owe responsibilities to each other. It's not just about being free from the state. And that is the route to what I... That's why I wanted to take these questions in reverse orders, because I don't need to repeat myself, and I've just given you a demonstration of how that's worked in practice. Did you want to interrupt me? No,
0: I didn't. I'm wondering about capture deletes, captured imagination. I know. You can't on.
1: wait for me to get on to and that, And then we go you? to
0: another round. And um
1: <laughs> Okay. I had a feeling when you said you were from Spiked, that you weren't going to be a, a, a fan without some sort of um, caveats, um, because we come from, Spike. is a, how would you describe Spike? No, don't Libertarian. begin. No, please. Libertarian. Libertarian. Me. And human rights and libertarianism, they, they argue with each other. There's no there's overlap, but they are in an argument with each other. That's what I meant earlier when I said human rights is an ethic and it's an argument that has to be made. Um, I do actually think... I thought until you told me otherwise that I did believe in democracy, but it is true that I'm with... (laughs) I'm with Brenda Hale, the only female judge on the Supreme Court, when she said human rights are there to protect... Every human rights instrument is devoted to protecting minorities and individuals against those who don't like them. And then she goes on to say... Democracy, and now she's she's defined democracy in a human rights term, so she then says, democracy values everyone equally, even if the majority doesn't. Human rights, in other words, on that definition, on her definition, keeps democracy clean. It stops it riding roughshod over those, the Visibility Project again, those we don't notice, who are in the dark corners. And I have to say to you, I'm an elite fully admit it, many of us in this room would probably accept that self-definition as well, but the people who benefited the most, and I exclude Prince uh, uh, Charles from this and um, the famous celebrities who benefited, excluding them, almost everybody who's, who's benefited from the human rights act are anything but an elite they're the people who we don't even notice by, the, by and large they're the visibility project that I was talking about earlier, Though the people who benefited from that
0: Thank you very much. When very powerful people end up powerless, they turn to the Human Rights Act. It's quite interesting, including the very powerful news person who is an editor of one of the newspapers who ends up talking about her human rights being infringed as yes, she leaves court. And I must say, it's quite interesting to see how, when the powerful are reduced, they suddenly find a real need for Rebecca the Human Wade, Rights Act. By any chance. Rebecca Wade, I would we said we would right.
1: help each other, if we forgot right, the names. Right. I just
0: I'm just afraid of being caught up in some weird contempt law that they will push. For plus oh, well, it'll eight. be me now. Uh, I'm favouring the left-hand side. I'm wondering whether anybody has any questions. We have Rob, who's in the middle, who's in the middle, and as yet doesn't count. I'm looking for others. I'm looking for others over here. There's there's a lady over here who's on the right, and we have. You may ask a question. In fact, we're going to come to Rob. We're going to come because they weren't quick enough. We're going to come to you uh, directly after. Nick, whom I know,
6: but say who you are, Nick, and ask your question. Hi, Nick Walker. I'm a law graduate. I am a former journalist and writer. Um, I still travel around, and I'm, I was at a Charter 88 conference in Manchester in 1988. So does that make me a human rights activist? <laughs> <laughs> so
4: he
1: makes you a mover and shaker.
6: <laughs> I like to think I'm turning up.
0: Thank you. Thank you very
6: much. I remember... Uh, have you got a question? Yes, I do have a question. I'm very sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm Magna Carter is quite rightly doing a tour of England. I'm going to a conference in Berlin at the end of next month, and I hope there's going to be a representative from the President's Office for the European Court of Human Rights. Do you have... A, I'm asked, my question is, do you have a question that I should take with me? <laughs> to, the,
1: to the President of the European Court of Human Rights, did you the say? To the Office of
6: the
0: President.
1: Yeah. Such a question for them. Yes.
6: Yeah. That's a background as John. entirely non attributable
0: Very good one. Uh, on my watch. Right.
2: Thank you, Priscilla Alderson. I'm at UCL, and um, thank you very much. How inspiring. Um, So far, a lot of the discussion has been about human rights of the mind and the thought, but you mentioned that it really emerged from the Holocaust and recognition that our human rights are embodied, and they're nearly all expressed and enacted through how our bodies are tortured, confined, nurtured, respected. And um, I wondered if you mentioned in your book about the physicality of human rights. And perhaps also the innateness of them—that perhaps from our vulnerable, innate human nature, very unfashionable thing for sociologists to think about—but they are deeply within us in our need and our relationships from the start. They are not artificial things that we learn and acquire later on, and we do them um, because they are, because we have to. <laughs> Well, it's going
0: back to it. Is that it, Priscilla? Well, I
2: could go on, but I'll stop. Okay. No, I
0: didn't mean to cut you off, but of course innateness is one of the foundational issues about human rights, so it's good to have another chance to go to it. Last one in this round.
6: I'm Robert Craig. I'm a teacher at LSE. Um, I was just curious. I don't know how technical we can get, but <laughs> from a legal perspective, um, I've got a question about the effectiveness of your your five-year project, because... When I was coming through the system, Connor taught me human rights um, many years ago at King's, and um, we talked about Canada a lot and how Canada was so this, I did, I the Canadian idea. system and how oh, yeah. there, was this, there was this overriding ability of Parliament to, to, um, under, to, 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 to overcome an adverse decision which they'd never used. And this was part of the problem why they didn't want to do it because they were like, we're never going to do this Canadian system because that means we're going to be subject to a juristocracy. And this was why this clever new method was... Implemented. My question is: to, um, Is there not a sense that, unfortunately, despite your best intentions and the best intention of the drafters, we're now in a new situation where, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, however you describe it, we've got a quasi-Canadian situation now, because every time there is a uh, an adverse judgment, it is changed. You've got Cameron in Parliament now saying, after Thompson. I have to change this, I'll do the minimum necessary, but I have to change this, yeah? And when you've got the ECHR make a decision of a judgment, we've got the House of Lords now saying, no no more, but certainly no less, and no less, but certainly no more, which to me means very little breathing space, and argentoratum locutum, judicium, finitum, whatever it is, which he said, Strasbourg has spoken, the case is closed. So, the, so when you've got all three of these elements, and the DOI, the DOI is now changed, we've now got a situation where the norms that by which the officials of the system run it, are now deciding, mean that there is now a strong convention that we have to change every single time. <coughs> so despite your intentions, we now have a quasi-Canadian situation and therefore we now have a juristocracy, which means we've lost our flexibility, we've lost our political constitution, and that means we now and that's maybe rather than this elite problem, that's the real problem, isn't it? Is that the British people do not want to lose that flexibility. They feel it and they can feel this this transition from a politi- political to a legal constitution, don't like it.
0: Right, thanks, Rob. Very clear and not technical at all, really. Uh, but I'm going to try and get another round of questions in. So if you could okay. keep these three, they're a bit more specific maybe right. than the last three. Short-ish, we can go back to the crowd. Okay, Audience. let's start
1: with Priscilla because it's in a different ball game and these two are more similar. Um, as, as Connor said, what you're, you're leading into there is the whole issue of the foundation of human rights. Is there a foundation? Which is another theme that I do explore a lot in the book. I, it's a very interesting question. Morsink, um, M- M- who wrote Johannes Morsink, who, who wrote the sort of seminal text on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, he develops, he, he develops his theory that there is an inherent, um, if you like, capacity to empathize with others. That that's what the foundation of human rights is, which I think is what you were getting at. Um, I found all the foundational theories fascinating. I don't think you need to have one to make the case for human rights because it is an argument. And arguments can be argued internally in based on their own logic. And my argument for human rights is simply this. I'm still waiting for something better to come along that shows me how we can manage to live together peacefully, peaceably in a diverse world, respecting each other's difference while seeing what we have in common is greater than what divides us. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- Robert... Um, and then I'm going to try and think of a question for you. I'm giving give myself time here um, to, to ask. Well, uh, now, I think I've been wondering how I was going to deal with a slightly more technical question if it came up. So I just want to translate what you said very quickly for anyone if they weren't entirely sure what you were getting at. There's a
0: lot of people nodding there, <laughs> um,
1: um Which is simply this. Um, Connor referred to the, 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 the way we approach the Human Rights Act, those of us who were involved in it and we basically were given this task to find a way to allow our parliamentary democracy as it is conceived in this country to keep going fundamentally within the same constitutional norms and we looked at other systems and Canada being one that we studied a great deal New Zealand being another and in Canada the reason why the then Labour government didn't want to follow Canada was that although it had a get out clause that, that, that you could pass legislation which said this, this, this legislation stands notwithstanding our Bill of Rights, our Charter of Rights. No law within, by the federal parliament was ever passed without rider on it because what government ever wants to say, we passed a law that features human rights. So we tried to find another way which said um, that the courts could say, rather than expecting parliament to ever say, we passed a law that doesn't support human rights, the courts could say this law doesn't, doesn't comply with human rights and then parliament really government under our system, could decide whether to change the law or not. And what Robert is saying is that every single time the government has either changed law or policy so that it's acting in the same way as the Canadian model. It's making no difference, and in effect, therefore, the courts have the final say. Of course, the one exception to this was the prisoner voting uh, uh, ruling, where our courts, in spite of what the European Court of Human Rights uh, Said and were, uh, were encouraged by barristers to say that prisoners should have a vote here. Our courts said, no, we can't reinterpret our legislation to say prisoners should have a vote here. We'll just issue a declaration of incompatibility and say you know, that they should do. And Parliament, as we know, have so far ignored them. My, my, therefore, therefore, that is the, 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 the. No, I'm sorry, it is. It is the exception that proves the rule. Therefore, it is possible for that to happen. That's the point I'm making here. My own personal take on this is as follows, and I'll be as quick as I can. When Jack Straw, um, I hate to bring him up again, um, spoke spoke in uh, Parliament Home Secretary introducing the bill, I had a little bit of input into what he, he said. And he gave examples of how... Parliament might refuse to listen to the courts if they issue a declaration of incompatibility. And I think he, remember, he mentioned, um, I think, um, if, if the courts were ever evit- to say... Abortion. Yeah. abortion yeah. that's right. Yeah. And was gun control another one I think he meant If he didn't say it, they said it in a speech. I get confused about which, what was said when now. In and in somewhere else, it might not have been in Parliament, but somewhere else he said if gun control was overturned, if um, our expenditure... On parliamentary elections, which could have been overturned by the European Court of Human Rights and our court refused to change them. Um, We would refuse to change the law even if Parliament said, even if the court said, forgive me, uh, that this was a breach of the Human Rights Act. And I still believe that our model allows that. What has been happening is as follows. It doesn't suit the politicians to say that they have decided (laughs) to keep the law as it is or to change the law as it is, it suits them to say it's all the court's fault. So the case that Robert was referring to was, I think, the Sex Offenders Register, where Cameron goes to court and says, what can I do? What can I do? The Supreme Court has told me I've got to change the Sex Offenders Register to allow people to have an appeal. Now, you may think that's actually very reasonable, because you've got people on the Sex Offenders Register who did something when they were 14 and they're on it for life and they can never, ever, ever appeal to get off it. Ever. Ever. And our court said should it, it breaches the Human Rights Act because there is no appeal. But Parliament could have ignored it. Under our system, Parliament is sovereign. And Cameron went and pretended he was forced to change the law by the courts and then introduced the change, which he was not forced to do at all. I don't think it's possible to legislate for that kind of mendacity. I think that is about citizens educating themselves and saying, rubbish, you're... you're, you're, you're Lying to us, this isn't true. You didn't have to change the law. That is the only way to deal with it.
0: And Nick's Next question <laughs> okay. and then a quick question. This is fire a question to the European Court of
1: Human Rights, right? I think you have to say this. You know, you do really, really good work, but people in this country aren't understanding what you do. How are you going to find a way to explain the ethical principles behind the judgments that you make? Because you don't do that now. That's the Very question good. I Very
0: good. Now, look, quick fire. We've only got five minutes. I want people to be able to get out of here on time. Quick fire questions. We've got one in the middle. It'll take a while for the microphone to get to the person in the middle. Have we got anybody over here? Have got another one? One, we have a hand tentatively up. There it is. Second microphone with them. Names and quick, quick, quick. Um, Helen
5: Wildball from the British Institute of Human Rights. Um, I'm the Helen that Francesca referred to earlier, I have to declare that interest, but I'm here with my VHR hat on. I'm responding to a couple of questions um, from behind me. I'm sorry, I couldn't remember your names, but about how um, human rights are all about judges deciding things and are very legal and maybe sometimes political. Um, I wanted to add that people's understanding of human rights are based on those stories that they read in the newspapers, And they're usually the big legal cases that happen in our courts, normally the Supreme Court. But from speaking from BHR, I go around the country and speak to social workers, doctors, nurses, teachers about human rights, and I talk to ordinary people as well. And I can say that from my work and BHR's work, the main way that the Human Rights Act is used is by people, individuals, sometimes supported by advocates, if they can find one, but people having conversations with service providers about human rights. Right. And it's useful for them that it's legal because it gives its teeth. That's what gives it its teeth. But it's a tool for them. It's a way to have a conversation about you've made this decision about my treatment or this service is poor. What can we do about that? And okay. human rights is how that's being Brilliant.
0: done. I take it as a comment, and I hear, hear, hear from the front row, all, all the that. Francesca fans here in the <laughs> middle. Uh, it's a comment, which means I'm not going to ask you to say much about well, it. It's a very valuable on it one. Anyway. It's a very valuable one. Is this the person who previously? Have you got a microphone? What's happened to it? Yeah, yes. There you
5: are. Yeah. Away you go. Hi, uh, my right. name's
3: Nico, um, and I'm studying my gap year. Um, What's your name? Nico. Nico, yes. right here. Um, and I was just wondering if you could please clarify juristocracy, um, as I didn't understand it, and what problems it poses.
0: Okay. Uh, so, do we have a third? We have you, change you wanted to come in. Do we have anybody else? Fairness, 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 diversity, et cetera, Blah, blah. Right. Away you go. Last one. Thank you. My name is Andrew Small. I study an MSc Human Rights here at LSE. Um, I come from a country that has no Bill of Rights um, and probably no Bill of Rights on the horizon. It's Australia. But what we do have are a number of implied <coughs> rights from the Constitution: um, implied right to freedom of speech and freedom of political assembly. Do you think that's an acceptable substitute for a Bill of Rights, based on your own experience in drafting the British Act? Very, very, very nice, uh, which we haven't covered at all. Helen's, we really say, yes, here, here. Absolutely, I can uh, on it. Nico's could be quite short, because it's a sort of technical question about aristocracy, and then end with Andrew.
1: Well, okay. Um, Nico, what what it is is basically what the papers tell you we live under every day of the week, which is um, ruled by judges that democracy is... A, it's the thing I apparently, according to our friend up there, Support, which is the end of democracy and ruled rule by judges instead, um, which we don't live under, I'm glad to say, I don't think. And in terms of Australia, um, I remember being shipped out to Australia, or rather flown out to Australia in order to speak at a conference <laughs> for um, the ACT to develop their own Bill of Rights, and there have been various Bills of Rights in um, parts of territories of, of, of Australia – um, and I remember that they wanted to do what we did here, which was to have a bit of fight, which still le- left the same word with the legislature. You'd have to tell me whether... This is a, so in other words, you haven't got one at, the, at the, the federal level, but you have got various ones at the, at the state levels or territory levels. Um, the whole point for me, Bill, I do think they're important, and I do think they give power to the powerless, to the least elite, because they're the ones that have nothing else to turn to. That's why you get so many tar- terror suspects, um, travellers, all the groups, uh, people in Iraq who would never, ever, ever be able to claim any rights if the human rights activists have appealed. I can tell you, in any of the countries that we invade, the conservative policy document is very there will never be extraterritoriality again. We will go back to those good old days where we can talk about liberty here and talk to everybody else abroad. Sorry, I'm speaking in shorthand now and exaggerating my point, but you get it. Th- those are the people that are going to miss the most because they will never, ever win through the democratic system. That doesn't mean I don't believe in democracy. I ser- seriously do believe in democracy, but I do believe in a democracy that cares for every individual, not just the majority and if in Australia you found a way to have a democracy like that without a Bill of Rights, it's not the Bill of Rights that matters to me. It's the universal human rights principles. That's what I care about. Thank you.
0: Great. Marvellous way to end. You haven't got time.
1: You, haven't, you have not
0: got time for that round of applause. I want a better round of applause a bit later on. <laughs> there is a rival, a rival conversation on the 10th of June, uh, which is between Shami Chakrabarti and Francesca. So if you thought there was a bit too much of me, or you felt that I didn't draw out Francesca which, uh, you can come to another one. It's on the 10th of June and the book, the book, especially you guys on the web who weren't here tonight, you come to that one, the 10th of June. The book will be available at this ridiculously cheap price that's completely escaped my mind. (laughs) That's the launch. That's the launch. That's the launch of the book. 20% off still? Then? No. You buy your book. (laughs) Buy your book now. Also, uh, this is an event put on not just by the LSE Festival. It's put on, it's put on by the Centre for Study of Human Rights, and you can follow the Centre for Study of Rights on Twitter and you can do it on Facebook and you can come to its events. Fantastic operation. I used to be very closely involved in it. So it's going strong under Zoe. Get it over here and please keep an eye on the Centre for Study of Human Rights. Uh, thank you all for contributing. Thank you to the questioners. Actually a fantastic range of questions. Uh, But as we walk out, but just before we walk out, massive round of applause to Francesca Club.